Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, we're going to talk through the furor over how Joe Biden has made women feel uncomfortable over the years with his handsy campaign and political style. It began last week when a former Nevada state lawmaker, Lucy Flores, wrote an op-ed highlighting her experience with with Joe Biden at a political event in in, uh, 2014. And it highlights a generational gap among Democrats and in politics at large, and one that Biden is uh, going to have to wrestle with if, as expected, he jumps into the 2020 presidential race. Plus... Uh, let's say you're the mayor of a medium-sized town and you're running for president, and then all of a sudden you raise seven million bucks. Then what? We're going to be talking about the financial picture of the Democrats running for president, including Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who made a little bit of a splash this Monday when he released his fundraising figures, uh, and, and of course uh, Bernie Sanders, who announced later that week, uh, this week, that he was raised 18.2 million in the first quarter as well, pacing the field. Uh, As always, before we get started here, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday. Today, that's April the 4th, so it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests online from California this week, a frequent flyer and frequent guest, Politico National Political Reporter Natasha Karecki. Hi, Natasha. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And in the studio, as usual, senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. Charlie, good to see you. Hi, Scott. All right. Time for our first data point. 4.4 million. That's the number of views a video has gotten as of this morning of Joe Biden acknowledging how he's made women uncomfortable in the past with physical contact. Uh, That video has been viewed 4.4 million times, probably going to be a lot more by the time... uh, uh, all of our listeners are are tuning in. Natasha, take us through the background on this uh, still developing story, which uh, began about a week ago when a former state lawmaker in Nevada wrote an op-ed uh, saying that the uh, the former vice president kind of uh, gave gave her an unwanted kiss on the on the back of the head uh, in in 2014 before a political event. Uh, what has happened since then? Sure. Well, since Flores came out, um, this national discussion erupted about the former vice president's physical interactions. I mean, he's long demonstrated what some people are calling a tactile personality, um, (laughs) otherwise known to be touchy. Um, And uh, lots of questions about whether his behavior crossed the line. Was it inappropriate? Um, This is all being adjudicated in the press. Um, And then a few more women came forward complaining that Biden's touchiness made them uneasy, uncomfortable. Um, And initially, it was interesting as we saw... It sort of seemed like Biden's team was kind of downplaying it. Um, then their pushback became more aggressive um, until finally Biden on Wednesday released the video, taking responsibility but not apologizing, which then, you know, today and, you know, in our story um, on what, on Wednesday and Thursday, talked about the, the, the fact that he didn't say, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. in that video. Natasha, I want to ask you a question about how your – um, re- reporting through this and, and describing what we're talking about here, because I, I think unlike a lot of uh, the, 
this genre of stories that we've been covering more and more frequently over the last few years, what what Biden is being accused of here, it's not uh, criminal conduct. He's not being accused of sexual assault uh, or, or, or anything like that. How do you describe what is is going on in this story? Well, as far as the language of it, I mean, I, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, you can't, it's not, it's something different, right? It's not some, like someone saying he sexually assaulted me or, or, or making an allegation like that. It's more, it's kind of a little bit of new territory um, where people are just, where women are expressing how they felt by it. And, and then I think the best way for us to portray it was just to quote women and how they felt about it. He's getting into my personal space. He's touching me in a way that I, I don't want. It's unwanted um, attention and unwanted you know, physical interaction with someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, we, we did this follow-up story sort of talking about how people were looking at it through a general, generational lens, a, a different lens, depending on, you know, not, not across the board, but generally speaking, what, what you saw was sort of a new generation saying it was flatly unacceptable. This is totally unacceptable. You know, you have a, a man of power, coming into a woman's space, mm-hmm. kissing her on the head, like, what the heck? Um, and then you have people from older generations saying the, like, the exact opposite. Um, you talked to Susie Tompkins-Spiel, who's a longtime Democratic donor from the Bay Area, and, and, you know, and she flatly said, I come from a different generation where people were really friendly and, and weren't afraid to show it. And, and she said she didn't want Biden to change it the way that he was doing things. You know, but then you go back and talk to Flores, and she's like, "Where's the apology?" Mm-hmm. No, I don't want him. I don't want him touching me. And, and a lot of a lot of women are saying that. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's it's just it is a different time, and and that's what Biden got to in the video. Yeah, it, yes, it is a different time. His interactions are being looked at through a different lens. On the other hand, it, it's always kind of been kind of borderline weird behavior, right? I mean, it, we've we've long talked about you know, the, the photos of Biden and somebody on his lap or, or him whispering in somebody's ear. I mean, it's always been a little bit different, I'd say, than the average politician. Yeah. And what you, well, one, one more thing before before we go to Charlie here. The, the, you, you mentioned how there's a generational breakdown and how people are reacting to this. But the, this also, uh, I mean, the, this story kind of gets to the, the generational breakdown that we're going to see in the Democratic primary, too, for president in 2020, right? The, right. There's this... Uh, you know, thirty or forty year uh, range of uh, when when these candidates were born, and uh, you know, not not to mention the huge, even bigger range of where when the voters uh, who are going to be deciding the nomination are, are born. And th- this um, uh, hi- hi- certainly, uh, to me, it seemed to kind of highlight that in a in a different way than than I'd, I'd thought about it before. Right, and I, I think it, it highlights one of Biden's biggest weaknesses that he doesn't want highlighted, which is that he's old, you know, and out of step with, with the world. I mean, and, and he, you know, here he is, like, coming out with this video, and uh, <laughs> there was all this chatter on social media when he released the video saying, like, he didn't upload it correctly to Instagram, like, only part of it was shown, and, you know, hey, wh- why is the camera angles goofy? He's not mic'd in the right way. So, you know, the, it, it was just bringing attention to the whole thing, that he was just he's just older and out of step, and... Um, you know, and you know, another thing that I was trying to do was, I mean, just imagine if some of that behavior, like if Cory Booker was doing it mm-hmm. or, or anyone else in the field, like it would just be, it would be kind of bizarre and completely unacceptable. So 
Um, so, so yeah, it's it, it's kind of churning up a, a lot of issues that Biden doesn't want turned up in this with regard to the field. Charlie, where how does how does this factor into your calculation of whether it it certainly seems, especially given the way that Biden has responded to this, that even though he hasn't announced anything yet, that he is going to be running for president, that he's going to be joining this primary. How do, how if at all does this uh, this story the, the, this week affect your calculation of whether or not he could make it through that primary and whether he could win? I think it provides a use, useful window into uh, the, the vulnerabilities and weaknesses of his campaign. I mean, we sort of knew what they were to begin with. Uh, we knew this was out there. I think even the rival campaigns will tell you they thought that this was going to flare up at some point. And, and clearly, the Biden campaign also expected that there was going to be some sort of blowback to this. Because remember, the, the business about him being a, quote, uh, tactile politician, that was a quote that he made several weeks ago mm-hmm. uh, in a speech. So clearly, they were sort of trying to pay the path for people to understand like hey we get it it was a little bit weird uh we're not going to do it again but but that fell short to me the real problem here is the, the the point that natasha made is that it underscores the generational problem that he has that was always going to be one of his big problems is getting past the idea that he that he is of advanced age and this i think has really exacerbated that problem because it just highlights how out of step it is, how out of step he is with the modern party, because the modern party, we always talk about the so-called democratic civil war. It's it's less of a civil war than it is a generational gap between the AOCs of the world and the Biden and the establishment. And you see that reflected and expressed through who's coming out in support of Biden and who's not. It is, as Natasha said, there's Lucy Flores on one side and lots of progressives on one side, younger progressives. And then you've got, uh, you know, senators who have served with Biden in the Senate who are defending him and saying, oh, it's just Joe. He's just an affectionate guy. And so anything I think that underscores his age or uh, stylistic quirks that harken back to a different era, like the Mad Men era or something like that, all of that is bad news for Biden. Natasha, what what happens from here? Uh, I mean, you know, in in terms of are, are we expecting a campaign launch kind of more or less any day now from him? Do, do you have a sense of whether this spate of stories over the last week has changed anything in terms of uh, uh, what, what we ought to be expecting there? Everything we're hearing is that they, they still expect to move forward sometime this month, later this month. I mean, I would, I would think that this almost certainly delays things because he wants to get a little bit of distance from this. Um, but it, he also runs the risk of, you know, every day another woman coming forward and saying, you know, and the flare is up again, um, as, you know, another woman saying she felt uncomfortable or, you know, describing a situation and bringing it back. And, you know, there's some criticism that because he didn't say I'm sorry that he just completely left the door open to having to come back and dress this again in another way. Um, but bottom line is I, I don't think this throws him off course. I, I, it, it just seems like his team was a little taken aback by, by how this became much more of an issue than – I think they kind of fell back on, well, it's not sexualized. You know, this was innocent. Um, and kind of trying to swat it away, and it just keeps coming mm-hmm. back. So it's not, not working. I think we still need to see kind of how that plays out. 
um, of course, you know, with now with more Mueller report stuff coming, and maybe that takes over the news cycle and catches a break. <laughs> well, we will see where it uh, it keeps going for uh, the the former vice president from here. But uh, like you said, Natasha, expecting him in at at, at some point in the near future. I guess we'll, we'll keep, stay tuned for exactly when that is. But thank you so much for uh, for for joining us on the, on the line from California to chat about it, and we'll keep an eye out for your uh, continued reporting on this. Thanks for having me. All right, take care, Natasha. All right, we're going to move on to our next data point now, which is $18 million, $18.2 million, actually. That is the number with which Bernie Sanders has led the way so far among Democrats running for president in terms of raising money in the first three months of the year. Uh, the first quarter fundraising deadline passed uh, at, at midnight and the last day of March. In a couple weeks, we're going to get the FEC reports from all those candidates. But in the meantime, a lot of the campaigns that did quite well uh, have released their fundraising totals, and no one has raised more uh, than Sanders, who, uh, as he was in 2016, was fueled by uh, a, a hundreds of thousands of donations from his big uh, online fundraising email list. So uh, here to help us break it all down, we have some uh, other members of our 2020 presidential reporting team here. Uh, we have national political reporter Daniel Strauss. Hi, Daniel. Hi. Hi, guys. And national political reporter Elena Schneider. Hi, Elena. Hey, Scott. Both in the studio. Good to see you both. Let's start with a big picture question here. How much money is it going to take to win the Democratic presidential nomination? $100 million? More? Charlie, you've, you've covered uh, a few of these in the past. And obviously, the campaign finance landscape is continuing to change and evolve around us even this year. But what's your take? You know, it's hard to say anymore, especially in, in light of uh, the evolution in uh, small dollar fundraising and online fundraising on the left, and but also in the context of what we saw in 2016 on the Republican side in the crowded field. You had one uh, colossus, Jeb Bush, you know, uh, rolling out $100 million. And where did look where it got him? Got him nowhere. And the guy who ran, uh, you know, a really lean campaign, didn't spend any money uh, or spent very little money, Donald Trump ended up crushing him there. So I think it, it's hard to say anymore how much it's going to cost other than, you know, if you expect to be somebody who's built to last, and this is a marathon, it's not a sprint. You know, if you expect to, to make it all the way through uh, the fall, you need to, uh, you're, you're talking about probably somewhere, you know, over $25 million at least to make it through the rest of this year. Mm-hmm. I would argue, though, that there's a, there's a difference in in terms of the kind of money, right? I mean, like Jeb Bush's money was super PAC money from big donors, and that isn't necessarily an indicator of where momentum or where the electorate might be. And I think that the Democrats, um, for good or ill, have have uh, have excised a lot of donors or bigger donors or super PACs from their options in terms of how they're going to raise money, and instead have to be very reliant on those small dollar donors. And I think that those are a better thermometer for sort of where things stand, and maybe give us a better indication in the short term in terms of maybe not who's going to be the nominee, like you said, but but somebody who who at least has some has some momentum going through. And Jeb Bush could sort of hide behind uh, sort of that big number, but wasn't really showing that that the energy wasn't exactly behind him. You right. know, in a story that Elena and I wrote last week, we ran into a donor or two who explained how uh, sort of donations and momentum in the fundraising community builds momentum. So if there's an exciting candidate and a donor is fundraising for them, uh, that donor oftentimes will want to make sure his friends will get in there. And that sort of builds support in itself. Um, so money is not necessarily an indicator of uh, 
a strong the strongest or a destiny to the nomination but it does show interest from certain corners that can fuel a campaign or at least keep it afloat through tough times and it seems like the campaigns are doing their best to 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 make that clear when they're announcing these numbers right bernie sanders didn't just announce that he raised 18 million he announced that it came from uh, 525,000 donors. That's, I mean, that's, that's a lot of people, you know, that's, that's the base of a, of a, a grassroots movement for a campaign. Uh, Kamala Harris and Beto O'Rourke, who raised, I think, 12 million and 9 million ish, respectively, uh, also had hundreds of thousands of, of donors. And then, uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, the big, uh, kind of current surprise, uh, in, in the field. Also, he, he, part of the reason he raised $7 million, which caught a lot of eyes, uh, when his campaign said this, right when when you guys were writing about it on on Monday, is uh, is because uh, he went he went viral a couple times online. He tens of thousands of people were were pouring a few bucks at a time into his campaign. But the other thing, though, is that there's so much hypothesizing right now and reading into what information we have. A few campaigns have released their Q1 fundraising numbers, and that causes political observers to wonder why, say, Elizabeth Warren hasn't. Uh, uh, released any information on her fundraising numbers or Jay Inslee. Um, At the same time, though, I, I, you know, the campaigns who do release those numbers, we it's it's easy to wonder why they decide to release them early, like they're trying to stanch the bleeding or stick out before this rush of FEC reports comes out and they could get lost in the shuffle. Well, this this raises an interesting question. Why why do we care about this so much? Uh, I mean, Elena, you've spent a lot of you're well placed to answer this because you spent a lot of time. Uh, wrestling with this question in the 2018 elections with all these these House candidates and came up with some pretty good answers, I think. But I mean, I, certainly part of the the question is uh, because there are relatively other a few other kind of data points for us to latch onto besides early polling, which we know isn't super predictive. Uh, but but what what is it that matters so much about about this stuff that that, that causes us to kind of perk up and, and pay attention to it? Well, I think it depends on who you ask. I think if you ask um, the campaigns, uh, I would lean on the wisdom of Destiny's Child and say bills, bills, bills. They have to pay for all of this. They have to pay for staffers. They have to pay for their trips. They have to pay for infrastructure. And that's something that we talked about um, in Pete Buttigieg's case where he didn't have any resources, so he didn't have any infrastructure to lean on. And now that he does actually have money, he can go out and go build it. The campaign was basically like him and a few other people setting up media interviews for right. him to get attention for free, right? Exactly. And, I mean, he's right now running the most Donald Trump-esque beginning of his campaign because he's leaning almost entirely on earned media. I don't think that that'll sustain itself, and I, I think that they would certainly be unhappy with that comparison, but I think that they, they've masterfully done sort of an earned media run here, and, um, and, and I think that they're now going to have to transition into a more serious sort of I shouldn't say traditional, but at least having something on the ground, because uh, unlike Donald Trump, um, I don't get the impression he's going to run around attacking people the way that Trump was able to command earned media attention. But to answer your question, on the other side of the coin, why do we care about what money is? I think you're right. It's it's we we don't get invited into the um, at least we don't often get invited into the uh, the calls that these campaigns have to talk about what's going on internally. So these are one of the few concrete signs that we can get where we can't be spun on those numbers. Numbers don't lie. And we get a measure of where things stand. Bills, Bills, Bills is a good song. <laughs> it's a great uh, song. Tr- trenchant analysis. Uh, Charlie, um, we, we've, we've mentioned the, the uh, young mayor of South Bend, Indiana a few times in, in the last uh, uh, few minutes. Um, 
raised seven million dollars, caught a lot of eyes. That way, he's caught a lot of eyes over the last uh, uh, few weeks at CNN Town Hall and and this and that. Do do you think what 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 do you what do you make of this? We've seen a lot of campaigns, uh, presidential campaigns, in the last four eight years uh, that have kind of had a moment and then have have popped up a little bit in the polls, raised a little bit of money, and then receded and never to be heard from again. Uh, and you know where 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 do you think this is this is going at this point? Do you think uh, that this interest in Pete Buttigieg is is built to last, or 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 do you think it's it's something that we're going to look back on in six months and kind of wonder is oh yeah that or is this Herman Cain or is it Donald Trump? There you go. <laughs> yeah, is this his, uh, his moment or not? I mean, we've seen so many flash in the in the pan candidacies at the presidential level, especially on the Republican side in 2016 and 2012, that you can't get too invested in the idea of Pete Buttigieg as the Democratic nominee. But as you guys know, he came in and, and uh, visited with some of us at Politico last year or 18 months ago, and he's a really impressive public official. Uh, you know, he's comfortable in his own skin. He's articulate. He's um, he's smart. He's serious. Uh, he's authentic. And I, I think audiences are seizing on that. They, they, they sense that. Um, he is also tapping tapping into the generational uh, angst in the Democratic Party. So for all those reasons, like he's legit. I don't think he's just a flash in the pan. Does that mean he's going to be a top tier contender? I, I, I wouldn't go that far, but but he's for real. But what I do think was especially uh, masterful, you know, to, to use your uh, phrase, Elena, was the rollout of the seven million for somebody who's not in. I mean, he's sort of in the national game, but not really. Um the way that campaign rolled it out, I thought it was super smart. They got out ahead of everybody else. Like $7 million is a pretty good figure. But what they did was they knew Bernie would crush them. They knew uh, Beto would probably outraise them. They knew they'd be outraised by a number of different campaigns. So they got out there before anyone else. They filled the vacuum while all of us in the national media were dying for numbers because this was going to be the first metric. They knew everybody was hungry for numbers. They filled the vacuum and they knew if they showed, they, they obviously knew the number they had. They knew it was going to be pretty good. And they knew that they would have that moment before everybody else, if they got out right away, right out of the gate and dumped that number to the news cycle, it would be huge. And I think that has really fueled some of the momentum around his campaign. Quick trivia question, Charlie. The last president who was a mayor at one point, I don't think anyone has ever jumped directly <laughs> from, from one to the other. Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know. Um, last president who was a mayor, uh, Teddy Roosevelt? Silent Cal. Oh, Calvin Silent Coolidge. Cal, yeah. So, what was wait, he the but, mayor of? Uh, Northampton, Massachusetts. All right. Elena? Daniel, thank you so much for uh, for coming on in to, to talk us through it all. Thanks, Thanks for having us. And Charlie, thank you as always. Scott, thank you. And as always, a big thank you to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. Our producer is Michaela Rodriguez. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like the Nerdcast and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. And a reminder, if you'd like to read these credits, please let us know. Send a note to us at nerdcast at politico.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.